This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its six-year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Monday, January 29th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about some of the most interesting movies that we saw at the 2024 Sundance Film Festival. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com. And yes, today, uh, I, first of all, I wanted to apologize for not having episodes on Thursday and Friday of last week. Um, it is because we were spending so much time watching Sundance movies and sort of preparing for a big article that we're publishing at SlashFilm.com, as well as this episode where we talk about these movies that we saw at the festival. So we've covered Sundance in various capacities and, and to various degrees at SlashFilm uh, for years. I mean, even longer than I've been at SlashFilm, that, that was sort of always my go-to spot for reading about what the most interesting and, and best and uh, movies that were coming out of that festival and that I should be excited about and looking forward to and, and sort of circling on my calendar for the upcoming year. Uh, and so I feel like we got a, we got pretty lucky with Sundance 2024 in terms of the movies that we were able to see and uh, the quality of the movies that we were able to, to see. So I wanted to gather a couple of my uh, compatriots uh, who also participated in the festival, and just talk about some things that we liked and wanted to put on your radar. So let's get into it. 
Okay, I'm now joined by Slash Film Editor and Chief Film Critic, Chris Vangelis. So Chris, what's going on? Hi, how's it going? Uh, I'm, I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, so we've been watching a bunch of Sundance stuff, and I'm curious if there were a few that you wanted to talk about that sort of, uh, I don't know, stu- stood out to you in some way, rose above the rest of the pack of the things that you watched. Yeah, so I, I'd say the best thing I saw this year, and to be fair, you and I, Ben, we did this uh What's the word? Virtually? Virtually, that's the word. And um, I, they, I feel like they they kept the best things to for people who were there in person, which makes sense. So they didn't give us like the the cream of the crop. But the best thing I saw in Sunday this year was uh, a movie called A Real Pain, which is from Jesse Eisenberg. And uh, this really surprised me because Jesse Eisenberg had uh, his, his directorial debut was at Sundance at 2022. It was called When You Finished Saving the World. And I did not like that movie at all. I thought it kind of stunk basically. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm not really excited about Jesse Eisenberg as a filmmaker, but after this movie, after a real pain, I'm very much interested in seeing what he does because uh, I guess when you finish saving the world was kind of a flute because this, this movie, it was, it was excellent. Um, this movie, it's about two cousins played by Jesse Eisenberg and Kieran Culkin who go to Poland on the sort of like sightseeing tour uh, in the wake of their, their grandmother's death. Their grandmother was, was born in Poland and uh, she left there. And um, this, this movie is about their, their little journey throughout various sites. And um, it sounds kind of bleak. It sounds bleak, but it's, it's, it's a funny movie, but it's also, uh, it sneaks up on you and gets like, really emotional at times and, and Kieran Culkin is is really good in this. Like I'm I'm a fan of his from Succession, but this proves that like he, he's like the real deal. Like he can I, I really want to see him in more things. Like he's sort of playing a character similar to his succession character in that he's you know he's got this constant sort of like droll, wisecracking sort of uh, dialogue, but it, it's it's not the same character at all. It's not like he's just playing you know, Roman Roy 2.0 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he's just really good in this. And the movie is just like this interesting, you know, slice of life little movie about these two characters and, and you know, how they relate to each other and, and how they react to this little uh, tour they're on. So I, I really recommend this. Like Kieran Culkin's performance is like bound to be one of those, like um, you're going to talk about this for the rest of the year sort of performances. I know. Mm. Excellent. I, I think I saw somewhere, and maybe back me up if you saw this as well, Chris, that it was um, acquired by like Fox Searchlight or something. Is that, or I guess they're called Searchlight Studios or Searchlight Pictures or whatever they're called now. Is that right? I did not see that personally, but I, okay. I hope it gets. I hope people see this because it's it's not like a big movie. It's not a, a flashy movie, but I hope people check it out when they can. Yeah, yeah it looks. Sure. I just. I just looked it up and it does, it does say uh, it's sold to Searchlight. So, yeah. Okay. I'm guessing that means it's going to get dumped on Hulu, which is kind of depressing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, That's but uh, you know, when, when it shows up on Hulu, please watch it because it's really good. Well, speaking of things that people can watch on streaming, uh, the first movie that I wanted to talk about is called The Greatest Night in Pop, which is actually available to watch on Netflix right now. Um, I, I, I just saw that, yeah. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. I didn't see um, the movie. I just saw that it was on Netflix. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is... Uh, so, everybody probably knows the song, We Are the World, which is just, you know, a delightfully or cringily cheesy 1985 pop song that brought together 40-plus superstar performances 
and basically it was about um, raising money for like uh, hunger strikes and, and um, famines and, and things like that in uh, specifically in Ethiopia. And um, this documentary is all about how that happened. And honestly, Chris, I never really thought about it before. Like I've seen the video for We Are the World. Like, you see all these people in this room singing along and whatever. But like the I, I've never thought about the um, the organization and like the uh the strategy and like the actual like kind of boots on the ground. How the heck do we actually get the most, some of the most famous people on the planet in the same room at the same time in like a pre-internet, pre-cell phone uh, era? It, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I just never really thought about how it came together. And this movie does a great job of showing the ins and outs of how this thing started from the beginning. It was Harry Belafonte's idea. And he sort of um, brought in Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones to write and produce this song. And then once those names were attached, all of these other names just kind of started falling into place. So like the, the list of people who participated in this thing, if you don't know, if you're not like familiar with the song is really wild. And this movie is super entertaining because the majority of it is there are a handful of like um, talking head interviews, especially with Lionel Richie, who was like kind of one of the masterminds behind the thing. But really most of the movie is behind the scenes footage that was shot on the day in the room. So you're just in there watching Stevie Wonder and Huey Lewis and Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan and Tina Turner and Billy Joel and like all of these people interact together. And it's kind of remarkable because, uh, you know, it's not only um, interesting for the novelty of it, which that is interesting in and of itself. It's also interesting because all of these people are without their entourages and they're without their agents and all of the yes men around them and, and their whole, you know, coterie of people that they all have individually. They're all just in this room um, joining together for this one purpose to sort of uh, combine their powers for the greater good. And you get to see how even some of these people, the most famous people on the planet, some of the you know, the most incredible musicians who ever lived are really nervous to be in that room and to uh, be around these other people. And there's a lot of like um, uh, imposter syndrome and stuff like that going on. And it's kind of like, wow, if these people feel this way, then like really everybody feels, <laughs> must feel like an imposter in some point, uh, you know, at some point in their lives. So um, yeah, it's a very, very entertaining documentary and it's on Netflix right now. So I would encourage people to check it out. It's like an hour and a half, basically just like a really breezy kind of light and poppy fun uh, documentary. But the, um, the only warning that I will give is that you will definitely have, we are the world stuck in your head because <laughs> they play it a lot over the course of the movie, as you can imagine. So um yeah, okay. So what's another one you wanted to highlight, Chris? Uh, another one I saw is called uh, Exhibiting Forgiveness. And this is like a, a quiet little movie. It stars Andre Holland, who I honestly think Andre Holland is like one of our best current working actors. He's just got something about him that really uh, clicks with me every time I watch him. And so he's got this like, I think it's his voice. He has a very uh, hypnotic sort of voice. And when I, I just can't help but like, get like wrapped up in, in his dialogue when he's talking about it. And in this, he plays um, a painter who uh, is estranged from his father. And we see in flashbacks that his father was a drug addict. He was very abusive. And now all these years later, his father sort of wants to make amends with him. And he has no interest in doing that. He, you know, he's not interested in that. At the same time, he's sort of haunted by his past because he keeps waking up in the middle of the night with these sort of like night terrors where he's like, angry and violent and he's just uh very um 
it just he has a hard time getting over what happened to him as a child. And the movie mm-hmm. sort of unfolds by showing you what happened to him as a child and how he's dealing with his father now that his father has re-entered his life. And uh, again, this is a, a, like a quiet little movie, like a uh, real pain that I don't expect a lot of people will see this whenever it gets made available. But you should. You should seek it out because – there's more to life than, than blockbusters. And uh, <laughs> I, I really just, this is just a really good character drama. It's just really, really uh, well done at, at portraying these characters. And uh, uh, John Earl Jelks, who I've, I've, I confess I've never heard of this actor before, but he plays Andre Holland's father and he's phenomenal in this. Like, he does a really good job playing this character as, it would be very easy to play this character as just like an outright villain, but he plays him as this very, complicated character who has like trauma of his own that sort of doesn't excuse his actions, but explains them and mm-hmm. uh, watching him and Andre Holland work off each other is, is a real highlight here. So exhibiting forgiveness. Really excellent. Good. Yeah, that sounds great. So the one that I wanted to talk to you about uh, kind of has like um, uh, some sort of resonance or like a rhyme almost with that movie. It sounds like, which I've not seen yet, but I'm excited to check that out. Uh, the one that I, wanted to talk about next is called Daughters, which is a documentary that takes place. um, Basically, it follows a group of several daughters ranging in age from probably five to 16 or something like that. And uh, their fathers have been locked up in prison in uh, Washington, D.C. And they, uh, through the the auspices of this um, activist group, get the chance to participate in a uh, daddy-daughter dance with their fathers. And the camera follows these girls as they prepare to reunite with their dads. Some of them have not seen their dads in years. And uh, it also, the camera goes into the prison and follows the this group of fathers who are going to participate in this uh, in this event and they have to in in order to participate in the dance they have to take this like 10 week essentially like a fatherhood course where they sit around in a circle and talk about uh, they basically open up to each other they talk about their own family lives and and their own relationship with their fathers and sort of what their uh, daughters need from them, their responsibilities as dads and what they can do to remain in their daughter's lives even after this event happens. And so it's really this amazing documentary that kind of takes you into an area that, that we as a society choose to kind of forget and not really think about. And it, um, it basically like gives you a, a window into how these guys open up and, and um, you know, talk to each other in ways that they never would otherwise. And then you get to see the the actual dance happen and their reunions with their daughters and it's just like emotionally gutting chris like it, i was you know ugly crying full on just weeping on my couch watching this at home um because it's it's just like tragic some of the stuff that you see in this and um it also is like sort of a subtle uh i don't know like a uh, um indictment i guess of the prison industrial complex and like how terrible prisons are like did you know chris you know we, we watch a lot of movies there's a, a trope in movies where somebody behind bars will go up to this you know th- they'll meet their family in in prison right and they'll go up to this like plexiglass screen and like pick up a, f- a phone on one end and the other person will be there and they'll like put their hand up on the screen and be able to you know kind of like quasi touch their their loved one or at least be able to see them through this plexiglass did you know chris that they don't allow people to do that in a lot of prisons anymore like they basically the inmates have to go and they sit in the same 
kind of area and they lift up a phone, but they talk to a screen, they, their families are required to, you know, in order to communicate with them are required to drive all the way to the prison, but they aren't actually allowed to see them even, you know, uh, I guess across from or through a plexiglass thing. And it's just like so inhumane and so um, awful for everybody involved. And this, this documentary does a really good job of sort of uh, tracking the ripple effects of like all this, uh, all the consequences of these actions, but also like the horrors and cruelty of the the prison system. So it's, it's a really, really good documentary. It's, it sounds heavy and it is in moments, but like, uh, yeah, I would definitely say this is worth a watch, but did you, did you know that about the, I, I had no idea about that at all. That's, that's crazy. That is yeah. Nuts. So messed up. Um, anyway, so the movie is called daughters. I don't think it has distribution yet, but um, definitely keep an eye out for that one. Um, did you have one more you wanted to talk about Chris? Yeah. So this is a tricky one because I don't quite recommend it, but I recommend it in the sense that I appreciate what they're trying to do here. I don't think it's entirely successful. So there's this movie, it's called little death and it's hard to talk about this because I don't want to spoil it because it's a really um, sneaky <laughs> sort of movie. So the first half of this movie um, focuses on a screenwriter played by David Schwimmer. And it's very much like this sort of, it's almost like adaptation. It's, it's this sort of like about this miserable screenwriter trying to write a movie and it's got this sort of narration to it. And it's got all this like, it's got these visuals that are clearly made by AI, which I feel kind of weird about. I don't really know how I feel about this, but you can tell it's got that AI look to it where they're like, they used AI to make a bunch of weird visuals here. And then all of a sudden it becomes this completely different movie about these two uh, drug addicts who are trying to uh, score and they're going through this like night in, in Hollywood that go, everything goes completely wrong for them. And I, like I said, I can't quite recommend this because it's not entirely successful, but I really appreciate the, the big swing going on here. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It's hard to recommend. Yeah, that sounds wild. Like, what? I mean, that sounds like unlike anything I've ever seen. Does it, does it uh, remind you of anything that you've seen before? It's, it's really like two movies in one. Like, it's almost like the movie remember that movie go that came out in like the nineties where yeah. it was like one night and there's a bunch of people there running around and it's like, it's like adaptation meets go, but that makes it sound better than the movie actually is. <laughs> so I, you know, Jack, Jack Beggert is the guy who, who made this. this is his debut film. So I kind of appreciate what he's, he's trying to do here. I just don't think it's entirely successful, but I, it definitely stood out to me. So I guess it's somewhat successful. Like it's, it's like, I remember, I'll remember this one of everything yeah. I saw, but it's not quite as good as it could have been, but it's not bad either. It's, I gave it a six out of 10, which is not like a, I recommend it, but not quite. Okay. So that's called uh, a little death or just little death. Just little death. Little death. Okay. Excellent. Uh, all right. So the last one that I wanted to talk about with you is called kneecap. Did you hear anything about this one by any chance? No, I, uh, other than uh, looking at it, on our blurbs i had not heard about it now oh yeah i should mention uh we we published um an article on slash film called every movie we saw at sundance 2024 from must sees to the totally forgettable which you can check out uh, i'll link to that in the show notes where we have uh either excerpts from full reviews or like like uh, capsule reviews um you can read more about all these things that we're talking about here but um kneecap is this really really interesting movie it's um set in northern ireland in, in belfast and it is basically about 
I think this is set like a couple of years ago, technically. Um, but it's about this uh, real Irish rap group called Kneecap. And the members of this rap group, this, this trio, they play themselves in the movie. And it's kind of a heightened, um, maybe lightly fictionalized origin story of how they came to be, you know, this like un, unconventional Irish rap group. And the reason they're unconventional is because they... Uh, they rap in English partially, but mostly in the Irish language, which is not um, or was not uh, widely accepted in Northern Ireland. There's there's the whole like sort of British colonial aspect to that. And uh, the Irish language, there were you know activists and people like that fighting to have the, the actual Irish language uh, recognized as like an official language of Northern Ireland, the country. And these uh, the, these these ne'er do wells, these like jackasses, basically, um, who just like sit around and do drugs all day, uh, happen to be like pretty good at rapping and realize that they can actually use their their native tongue to sort of help revitalize the language for the young people, the younger generations of of people who are living in in that part of the country, and um, and sort of like become these like unlikely political figures of these guys who are like. Um, fighting on behalf of uh, preserving this language that that was threatened to basically go extinct, uh, and and so it's this really rebellious, funny, riotous kind of movie where these guys are just very over the top, and uh, the the uh, establishment is not interested in seeing them succeed at all. So there's a lot of like uh, the cops and and all these people are these forces are coming together to try to keep them down. And it's about these guys sort of like pushing through that and rising up and becoming these like this, like, uh, yeah, like an, an unlikely, uh, uh, international force for, for, um, preserving language, which is not anything they actually set out to do, but, uh, but ended up doing anyway. So it's a very, very, very funny, very energetic, uh, very propulsive movie and it's called kneecap. So I hope that that one gets picked up. And, um, I, I think it won one of the, the audience prizes at Sundance. So, um, certainly like among the films at the festival, it got some attention and I hope that translates it into, uh, a distributor of some kind, uh, coming along and scooping it up because I think it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think, um, even if you don't really know anything about Irish politics or any of that, uh, it does a good job of laying things out. And Michael Fassbender, uh, pops up. I should have mentioned that earlier. He plays one of the characters fathers. He was, he was like a former revolutionary and he like reappears and in, in one of their, uh, one, one of their lives later on in the movie. So, um, yeah, just really good stuff there. It's called kneecap. So check that out, put it on your radar if you get a chance. Um, all right. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Sure. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, I am now joined by Slash Film staff writer Bill Bria. You actually had the chance to attend Sundance in person this year, so uh, you had a much different experience than Chris and I did covering it virtually. Um, what is the first movie that you wanted to talk about here today? Uh, the first movie I wanted to talk about is, uh, it's called Your Monster, and it is a really interesting uh, feature debut. As There's a lot of feature debuts, as happens at Sundance, especially this year's Sundance. Uh, this one's from Caroline Lindy. Uh, it's actually a feature-length version of a short that she already made uh, of the same name uh, about a young woman 
sort of making friends with her childhood monster under the bed, monster in the closet, that sort of thing. Um, and in fact, the movie is co-produced uh, by the actor who plays the monster, Edmund Donovan. Uh, but Melissa Barrera plays that that girl in this film. Uh, and of course, our readers will probably know her from the Scream franchise, as well as maybe In the Heights and a couple other uh, films that she's made. She's Her star is kind of on the rise. Uh, and um, it's a really cool and, and energetic and fun and insightful um, kind of horror fantasy comedy uh slash musical there's a lot of genres that she throws into the mix here uh and so it's one of those that you know maybe it's not quite for everyone because it it kind of spreads itself a little thin in terms of it's not purely a horror film it's not purely a comedy it's not purely a rom-com it's not purely a musical but all of those elements are in there which makes it really delightful uh to me and um it ends up being pretty impressively subversive in terms of the way it approaches the idea of you know, a monster in terms of not just a fantasy creature, but also, you know, a person's id, you know, or, or you know, some sort of locked in the closet elements of their personality that they repress that eventually mm-hmm. needs to come out. Yeah, that's great. Do you know if this one has distribution yet? I don't believe it does yet. So I'm, that's kind of why I want to shout it out, because I hope that it will get it. I think anybody who does pick it up, whether it's a streamer or hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, theatrical release, um, It'll, it'll definitely pay off for them because it's something that I uh, definitely played like gangbusters with the audience I saw it with, the premiere audience at the Egyptian theater. Excellent. And, yeah, I think it could really uh, take off in a big way. That sounds awesome. Okay, so that's cool. Um, the first one I wanted to mention here is uh, is kind of the opposite, Bill. It, it's a movie that like gave me a... Um, a sinking sense of dread in my stomach. It's called War Game. And it is basically a documentary that imagines a worse version of the January 6th insurrection. Um, It's basically saying, hey, there there are pretty significant problems in our military in terms of extremism, things like that. So in the next insurrection, what happens if the the, the, uh, politician who calls for the insurrection actually um, calls on active duty military members to actively participate in the insurrection this time uh, in in a much more significant way than, you know, some of the stuff that we've heard about uh, what happened in 2021. Um, So the documentary, uh, which is sort of put on by this uh, nonpartisan veterans organization, grabs a bunch of different people, um, current and former intelligence agents and army veterans and defense specialists and high-ranking advisors and all these people. And they basically do like a sort of pretend walkthrough of what might happen in in such a situation where uh, an, a presidential election is contested and, uh, you know, more violence breaks out. And basically they're trying to game out what might happen and, and how um, the United States can respond to such a thing uh, in maybe a more effective way than happened last time. So uh, there's a ticking clock aspect to this. Um, I think the timer is set for like six hours and they basically uh, have to see if they can save democracy or not. And there's a whole group of people who are on the sort of opposition side, like playing characters, basically, like like uh, acting as if they were insurrectionists and trying to, you know, flood the zone with myth- with uh, misinformation and like, um, you know, gum up the works as much as, as best they can for the people in the, the fake situation room to try to sift through the noise and know what's real and know what kind of decisions to make. So it's, it's kind of a terrifying (laughs) documentary. It's like one of the scariest things I've seen in a long time, uh, just because obviously it's like, so, 
um, the, the potential for it to be real is so frighteningly um, uh, plausible, you know? So, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it's a pretty serious watch, but, uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know if people will have the stomach for it, honestly, like in an election year uh, to watch something like this, but um, I don't know. I, I, I found myself like, uh, slight, weirdly comforted by it in some ways, but also terrified by it. Like, I, I'm just glad that some people are at least thinking about this. And I hope that the people who made this movie, um, are actually able to get in the room where it really happens and sort of get their, uh, their information, their conclusions and stuff in front of the, the real people who will be, you know, put in these positions potentially one day. So, um, we'll see what happens, but the, the movie's really interesting. It's called war game. It's a documentary. So, uh, check that out. I, I don't think it has distribution quite yet. Um, What's the next one you want to talk about, Bill? Uh, next one I wanted to talk about is one that does have distribution, which is a bit of a sticking point for me and some others. Uh, it's called It's What's Inside, and it just recently got bought by Netflix for a huge sum. I think it was $17 million, something of that nature. Uh, and it also premiered in Sundance's Midnight section. Uh, this one happened at the Ray Theater, and I was there for that premiere as well. And similar to your monster, I would even say more so, the audience went nuts for it because part of the fun uh, that writer-director Greg Jarden does with its What's Inside is it gives the audience uh, a very new experience in terms of not quite knowing what the game this movie is going to play is until it's well into it. So it's not as um, obvious to say it's a slasher or it's a murder mystery or, oh, it's a couple people at a party and things go wrong sort of thriller. It is a thriller. It's definitely not a horror movie in, in the sense that aside from a couple jump scares, it's not really trying to scare an audience. So, I mean, marketing is going to be a little of an issue uh, for whoever, whoever bought it, but also especially for Netflix, because they're probably going to lean on horror, horror, horror. And it might disappoint some, some audience members being like, well, this isn't scary. I don't, you know, I came for something scary because <laughs> what it really is, is it's a ride. It's a party movie in every sense of the word, because it's, it's set at a party and it's about a party and it feels like a party in the sense that, you know, I know I don't know what your definition of party is. Everyone has a different definition, but my definition, because I'm coming from like a you know sort of artist background, theater kid sort of thing, was you would go to parties. Yeah, there'd be substances around, maybe, but also there would be games. And you know, part of the fun of parties is like you know let's play a party game. And they even make reference to some party games in the movie itself uh, before they actually play the game that's at the center of the movie, which. I'm not going to reveal because it's part of the fun to try and figure it out. It might be revealed, you know, it might be spoiled before anyone ever sees it because whoever is in charge of the marketing for the movie, they might just decide to spoil what it is. Mm -hmm. But suffice to say that the title's a clue and it is about these characters who, um, you know, all were college friends and they sort of drifted apart after college. And now it's about almost 10 years later and they're reconnecting because one of their uh, own is getting married. And so it's a sort of bachelor party-ish kind of vibe. Uh, they're all at this guy's mansion who that used to be owned by his mother, who was an artist. And so there's all these different weird uh, artistic sort of bizarre avant-garde rooms in the mansion, including there's a patio where there's a giant flashing sign that says trauma, <laughs> which something <laughs> something traumatic might happen there later. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not a subtle movie. It's a very vulgar auteurist movie in the sense that. Jardin is throwing every trick at the, in the book at, at the audience where like, you know, there's all sorts of different editing tricks. There's all sorts of different camera speed tricks. There's all sorts of different needle drops that are happening uh, at once. And it, it's a very um, aggressive movie in ways where it doesn't let you sort of settle down too often. But at the same time, it's kind of part and parcel of what it's trying to get at, where this is a movie about identity. This is a movie about uh, people kind of not really knowing who they are versus who other people are. They're supposedly their close friends or partners. And this idea of, you know, if 
if there was a way to, you know, change who you are, like, would you do it? And hmm. what would you do if you did it? And so it's a really, really fun, uh, like I said, a party movie. It's something that I think if it was to get in front of an audience, it would really get a huge word of mouth building on Netflix. I don't know if that can happen. It might become a bird box situation where, you know, memes start happening and then everybody starts kind of word of mouthing it that way. I'm kind of hoping that's what happens because that's kind of what has to happen since Netflix isn't going to give it a theatrical release, at least mm -hmm. according to their initial reports. But um, it's definitely a strong debut uh, by Jarden and hopefully it's the beginning of uh, a beautiful career. Man, that's awesome. So yeah, the movie is It's What's Inside. And I heard so many great things about this one, Bill. I'm very jealous. This is like the movie that I'm the most jealous that you were able to see <laughs> in person this year. So um, I'm excited for it to eventually hit Netflix. Although, yeah, I, I definitely share your uh, reservations and hesitations about Netflix being the place for it. I mean, you know, I guess the, the best we can hope for is that like way more people see it than they would see it under a traditional distributor or something. And and maybe that will sort of help the the careers of all involved. But um but yeah, it sounds like this is like a perfect example of, of like a great uh, theatrical sort of group experience. But um, I don't know, maybe people can people can like create their own watch parties and stuff and kind of like try you to know, recreate. If I were in charge of marketing, Ben, I think you hit upon the nail on the head. If I was in charge of marketing, that's the way I would market it. I would say, don't just, you know, put this on at night when you get home from work, invite your friends over, make it a big event you're going to have fun with it, especially in that way. And maybe even more so than a random theatrical screening, because there's a definite meta element of like inviting your friends over to like spend time with you at your house and also watch this movie. So <laughs> hopefully that could happen. We'll see. Excellent. Okay. So the next one I wanted to talk about is a movie called Thelma. And it's probably the closest thing to an action movie that I saw at this year's festival. Um, which is funny because it is about a 93-year-old woman uh, played by June Squibb, the Oscar nominee. Uh, you may remember June her Squibb. Yeah, from uh, Nebraska, but she's had like a 50-plus year career. She's an incredible actress. Um, so she plays a woman named Thelma, the, the title character of this movie, and she receives a uh, harried call from her beloved grandson one day saying that he's in jail and he de desperately needs $10,000 from her. And um, she forks over the money only to quickly realize that she's been scammed. And this sounds familiar, Bill, because you and I were on this podcast talking about the beekeeper, which opens yeah. in a similar way. So there must be something in the air right now about uh, AI and scamming and all that kind of stuff. Um, but instead of just accepting the fact that she's lost this money, she decides to recruit her old friend who uh, was is played by Richard Roundtree, the great Richard Roundtree. This is his final on-screen role. He died a little while back. Um, and she recruits her... her yeah. Yeah, yeah. She recruits her old pal to help her get her money back, basically. And, you know, there's a way to kind of take that premise and play it as a joke. Like, oh, look how funny it is that these old people are, you know, <laughs> are like doing this thing and, and you know, going after it and, and kind of like uh, there's a, a running bit where she's kind of um, inspired by Tom Cruise because she watches uh, one of the Mission Impossible movies early on in the film. <laughs> so, and she like sees his face on a newspaper, and that's like the kind of final straw that gets her to that convinces her to like go after this, uh, you know, to to go after the people that that took this money from her. Um, but uh, you know, there, there's a way to kind of like point and laugh almost. But the writer director of this, Josh Margolin. Um, does not take that approach because a similar thing apparently happened to his own grandmother. So he kind of treats the this character and her feelings with a lot of respect. So um, it's, a, it's a very amusing, very funny movie. Uh, it has really fun performances, really solid performances. And um, it's, yeah, it's like a quote unquote action movie. Um, 
a very unconventional one. So it's called Thelma. And uh, I, I don't think this has distribution yet, but um, this is just like a family friendly, like watch it with everyone kind of enjoy it. Like if you're looking for something nice and easy after a, a long day of work, like this is a, a good one to, uh, to add to your list. So, um, okay. What else is on your roster that you want to talk about, Bill? Well, I just want to say I, that's the one I'm jealous that you saw that I missed Thelma. So hopefully I get to catch that <laughs> soon. Uh, it sounds great. It sounds really up my alley. Uh, the next one I want to talk about is one from a tried and true, you know, everybody's heard of Steven Soderbergh. He has such a relationship with the Sundance Film Festival, which they made sure to shout out when he was there at the Q&A for his new movie, which is entitled Presence, uh, which was uh, written by David Kep. Uh, and this is, I believe, Kepin uh, Soderbergh's second collaboration, if I'm not wrong, because they worked on Kimi, uh, mm -hmm. which was a couple years earlier, uh, which was also a very tense and very taut, mostly single location-ish thriller. Um, but this one definitely is a single location thriller. Uh, and it's also much more in the horror movie tradition because as the title suggests, it is about a presence in this house that uh, this family moves into. Um, and uh, they uh, soon find out that, you know, it's, it's something very supernatural. So the gimmick, if you will, of this movie is that it is a POV movie, not a found footage because there's a difference, even though there's a lot of overlap there in terms of technique. But we're not meant to think that this is anyone filming, you know, although there's a meta aspect to it, but we're meant to understand that this is a point of view of a ghost, which is uh, haunting this house that they move into. Uh, and of course, part of the fun uh, is figuring out what the ghost wants, what if, is the ghost someone, uh, a spirit of someone that actually used to live? Uh, is it someone that maybe these people in the family knew? Um, is it someone older than that? Is it someone not even corporeal as that? You know, we don't know until the end we eventually do find out of course um and part of the interesting obviously aspect of this is the fact that you know you're going through all of the ghost haunted house tropes from the other side so you know when things are crashing around in the kitchen you know randomly chairs are being moved around or objects you know flying about you know you're seeing why the ghost is doing that um you're not seeing actual because you're not because the ghost is is invisible to you too so you're not seeing a hand reach out or anything like that we're never seeing like a visualization of the ghost oh but, i see but, you know, it's it's point of view. So it's it's you know, you're understanding what it's looking at, why it's looking at that, why its attention is moving over there. And so it's part, you know, supernatural mystery, as most ghost movies are about, like, you know, why are you haunting this house? What is your goal? Like, what are you after? And it's also part. Uh, it's very similar in the way thematically to David Lowry's A Ghost Story from a few years ago, I think 2017, where in that movie, you know, it's it's a lot about, you know, from the other side what, what would it being ghost be like it would be a very lonely existence and also what presence leans on is the powerlessness of being a ghost because clearly this ghost is revealed to have an agenda of like you know trying to change events uh in, in you know things that they don't want to happen to these people in the house and yet they can't just communicate they can't you know speak they can't really write down anything they can sort mm. of just move things around and so you the viewer are conflated with that powerlessness of like, you're just an observer. You can't really reach out and say, no, get out of the house or no, look out. That character's, you know, got bad intentions or mm -hmm. whatever. So it's, it's this mixture of sort of the confessional, which is an element uh, present in all of Soderbergh's movies of, you know, the ghost kind of spying on these, these people and their intimate conversations with each other about whatever is going on in their lives. And then mixed with this central sort of thriller mystery of like, 
what's happening in this neighborhood and, and what what other threats besides the ghost might be around and all that sort of thing. So it's a really fascinating movie. It does have distribution. Neon picked it up. So they're going to put it into a theatrical release, which is pretty great. Um, I think if you're a fan of Soderbergh's, you absolutely have to see it. If you're not, you definitely or owe it to yourself to maybe give it a look because if you're into ghost movies, haunted house movies, or just found footage movies, you know, there's something for you there and there's something to talk about. Yeah, that sounds great. And I, I, I was thinking a lot of David Lowry's A Ghost Story when I was listening to you talk about that. And then you mentioned it as like a, you know, a movie that seems to be at least in somewhat uh, kind of like in conversation with this film. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that one. I'm not sure how many of our listeners saw that movie because it was pretty small when it came out all those years ago. Um, and it has not really had like a, a long tail in terms of like uh, being memeified or like having like a ton of, um, I don't know, cultural staying power, but it's a very, speaking of power, it's a very powerful experience watching that movie. So, um, I'm excited that there's something that has come along that seems to be sort of at least kind of quasi in that vein from what it sounds like. So, Oh yeah. And don't um, forget that I, I mentioned this in the review I wrote too, which is David Kep, the writer is also a director in his own right. He made the great stir of echoes, which kind of got buried by Blair Witch Project in 1999 but has kind of survived a little bit more than even a ghost story of, you know, Kevin Bacon, you know, dealing with the supernatural in his own way. And so there's a lot of thematic parallels there too. So definitely, definitely check out ghost story. Definitely check out the stir of echoes and then check out presence. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, so the next one I wanted to talk about is called sun coast, which um, I think is one of those movies that um, it, it, immediate, it immediately made me think of like, okay, this is the type of film that is going to get cited a lot in this actress's career. So it's a great performance from a, a young woman named Nico Parker, who has been around for a little while. She was in Tim Burton's Dumbo in 2019, but most of our listeners would probably recognize her as Joel's daughter in the first episode of HBO's The Last of Us. And she plays a teenager who lives with her mother and brother. Her brother has had cancer for years and his condition has become an all encompassing thing for her mom and kind of led to a strained relationship between the mother and the daughter. And this movie sun coast is basically a coming of age story about what happens when her mom decides to sleep in the brother's hospice room in his care facility. And that opens up uh, their house. And the daughter uses that now vacant house to throw a party and sort of make friends with her classmates and kind of come out of her shell as a person a little bit. Um, Woody Harrelson has a supporting role as a guy who strikes up a friendship with the main character. He's really fantastic here. Very like um, sort of uh, iconic, uh, like typical, what you would imagine a Woody Harrelson performance. Like he's very like in the pocket in his bag, like doing his thing. Uh, and it's just very enjoyable to watch. And Laura Lenny does a great job playing the girls um, really like uh, scattered and kind of, um, I don't know, obsessed in some ways, but like, but frazzled, I guess is maybe the better word, uh, the, the mother. Um, but really, this is a, a Nico Parker showcase. And I think this is going to be one of those movies that like, uh, I think about Shailene Woodley in um, The Spectacular Now or like uh elizabeth olsen in martha marcy may marlene those actresses have gone on to have great careers and they've been in a bunch of different things but i think even still those movies kind of follow them around like oh yeah the you know she was great in that kind of thing and i feel like people are going to be saying that nico parker was great in suncoast for a long time so um I believe, let me double check this. Yeah, uh, Searchlight Pictures acquired this one. So I think that probably means it's going to end up on Hulu at some point. I'm not sure if they're going to do a theatrical thing for it, um, but yeah, you will could. be able to see that. Yeah, you'll, you'll be able to see it at, at some point. So uh, Laura Chin is the director behind this. So um, yeah, check it out, Suncoast. Uh, what's your next that one, That sounds great. 
Uh, yeah, my next one uh, is the <laughs> another horror one. Uh, as you could tell, I'm a horror guy. Um, but also, there was a really strong horror offering at Sundance this year, which there not always is. Uh, in fact, just last year, I was a little disappointed by the offering. So this year, I was very pleased. And uh, this one, if Presence is a new take on the Haunted House movie, this one's a new take on the slasher movie. It's called In a Violent Nature. It does have distribution. It's definitely going to premiere on Shutter in the spring. So you don't have to worry about uh, having to wait a long time to see it. Um, and it is uh, written and directed by uh, Chris Nash, who uh, comes from a partially a, a special effects background. He was uh, supervising the creature effects on Psycho Gorman, if uh, readers know that wacky uh, cult horror movie, which I think was also on Shutter, if I could not, if I'm not mistaken. But um, this one is, and on one hand, it's a very rigid kind of throwback backwoods slasher obviously referencing friday the 13th and even a little bit more obscure ones like the prey and just before dawn uh where you know these kids are camping in the woods and they uh find out about the legend of this uh boy named johnny who you know was uh killed uh, accidentally as part of this whole you know history of the town and and you know he was made fun of and uh there was an issue with his parents and you know his mother and you'll you'll find out the backstory for yourself when you watch it but essentially he died and now there's his supposedly there's a legend that he comes back to uh you know take revenge on anyone who disturbs his resting place and or his mother's necklace which happens to be right above his resting place uh so the movie begins with a camper uh one of these teens uh taking it as a present for his girlfriend you know uh and that was a mistake and so you see Johnny, the the ghoul, the you know slasher killer, very reminiscent of Jason Voorhees, uh, rise up from his grave. And a lot of these reviews of this movie are calling it also a POV movie. Um, it's not because it is never shot from point of view. It's never inviting you, the viewer, to look through you know Johnny's eyes, even in, in a way of like Michael Myers from the first Halloween. You know, none of that happens here. Hmm. We are, however, following Johnny as he treks around the woods kind of looking for his mother's necklace and then dispatching anyone who gets in his way. Um, and the perspective change is, is definitely there. So obviously we're, you know, he's our central character insofar as like we're following him. We're not really supposed to empathize. We're not saying, oh, what a great, you know, guy he is. He's just getting into those <laughs> evil teens. You can think that if you want, you know, and some people definitely do, even about the Friday the 13th movies where it's like these kids deserve to die. But one of the things about In a Violent Nature that's so cool is the fact that because of that flipping of the script, uh, the slasher script, while not changing it, we we realized we don't need any of the details because these little things happen in the margins where like there's a, a love triangle between three of the teens, uh, including the final girl. Um, and then there's also, you know, a lot of other drama about why they're even there in the first place. And there's a campfire scene where they recount the legend of Johnny. But meanwhile, Johnny, of course, is watching this whole thing happen. Uh, it's shot in a very um, almost Terrence Malicky way, where it's it's a little bit loose, it's a little bit gliding. Uh, there's a lot of uh, aspects because of the title, of course. There's a lot of aspects of nature involved, so the woods are a character, and they are allowed to be a character because the sound design is so in intricate because there is no music score. So this isn't you know huh. something where you know you're hearing strings go screech 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 the entire time. You're just hearing the sounds of the forest, which makes it even creepier. So this movie has the dual effect of being both a very down to earth, you know, back to basics slasher. And that includes the kill sequences, which are incredibly elaborate and super gory. Some of the most gory scenes, gory kills I've seen in a long time. Well, and yet because of the relative quietness of the rest of the movie, because it's not inviting you, the viewer to be, 
necessarily you know suspenseful or scared through the use of a score at any point it's also this very meditative and melancholy and ultimately very eerie kind of experience because hmm. you know it's it's the loneliness of this killer character mixed with his menace which you know mixed with the kids you know not knowing that this threat's after them until it's too late you know and so there's this all all kinds of different uh tones and emotions that are blended in here which makes it feel incredibly fresh even while it's being incredibly basic and, and repetitive. So yeah. it's a really interesting movie. I don't know how Shudder's viewership is going to react to it. I think there's going to be a split. I think people are, some people are going to be, you know, over the moon with it like I am. And some people are going to be like, that was so annoying. And why was there no score? And I just wanted to see the kills, you know, all that sort of thing. So it's definitely going to maybe be divisive, but I think that's exciting. And I think it's really exciting when compared to the slasher. And we're in this sort of weird uh, post postmodern slasher, uh, I don't want to say renaissance, but m wave right now where we have mm -hmm. very high concept slashers like the recent Halloween trilogy that David Gordon Green did, and even stuff like It's a Wonderful Knife or Freaky, you know, that Christopher Landon and, and Michael Kennedy are doing, and Tyler McIntyre. So it's it's we're in a weird space now where everybody kind of understands the rules of the slasher, and we're looking for very high concept things. So this is an interesting way to do high concept without actually being high concept, which is cool. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So that's called In a Violent Nature. So definitely keep an eye out on Shudder for that one later on this year, probably. Uh, the next one I want to talk about uh, was acquired by Netflix. So you should be able to see this um, hopefully this year. Uh, it is called Skywalkers, A Love Story. Did you hear anything about this one, Bill? Uh, just a few things, uh, but tell me about it. So it's basically a cross between Free Solo, Man on Wire, and Fire of Love, the volcano documentary that played at Sundance a year wow. or two ago. Um, yeah, it, it, it's about these two Russian, they're called rooftoppers, which are basically people who illegally break into skyscrapers and climb up to the, to the highest possible point, sometimes even on like construction cranes that are on the roof, you know, incredibly high, and take photos and videos and like basically um, just scale to the highest points possible. Uh, so I, I'm kind of uh, of two minds about this movie, Bill, because I am um, I, I find it like almost morally reprehensible what they're doing because oh, wow. <laughs> they never think about, they never really talk about the impacts that they could have, the, the literal impacts that they could have if they fall and, you know, just kill a random innocent civilian who has no idea what's going on. Like yeah. in Free Solo, you've got, Alex Honnold, right? The the main subject of that movie. Right. And he's just like scaling mountains. Like he's out there sort of by himself that the danger of him, um, you know, falling is, is limited to uh, his own, um, you know, his own uh, death basically. And the emotional uh, wreckage that he would cause for the camera crew um, that that are with him, and that movie Free Solo actually actively grapples with that. Like you, you have those scenes in that film if you remember, where the camera crew and the, the directors of the movie are like talking on camera about whether or not they should even be there because their presence might make him, um, you know, make a move that he wouldn't otherwise, or like distract him in some way or something. So the, there's like a humanist approach there, and Skywalker's a love story does not really have that humanist approach in the same way. It tries to do a different thing where it's like more of a love story between these two uh, Russian rooftoppers and it, it tracks their relationship over many years. And as they um, sort of 
uh, go on more and more difficult climbs and uh, there's a heist kind of structure where like the 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 big uh, climactic thing is them trying to climb this like 118 story building in Kuala Lumpur and it's like very very much uh, heist movie tropes in place mm. um, but the the movie just seems to be missing some of the heart that uh, Free Solo had in, in my view anyway so but like at the same so I'm, I'm I'm like I feel weird about this movie Bill because I'm I find what they're doing to be so disturbing and so like um, selfish in a way. And, uh, and yet the footage that is, that they've captured here is unbelievable. Like if you, if you're scared of heights, this movie is your worst nightmare. It is like (laughs) they have uh, GoPros and stuff that they've strapped to themselves and they're climbing up and there's no protection and they're just, you know, thousands of feet in the air. Um, Sometimes just like, you know, climbing on, on, uh, equipment and spires and all sorts of stuff that like (laughs) no human being should be exposed to the elements in this way in a cityscape, but like the footage is unbelievable. So, um, I feel like it's a very effective movie if, if not one that, uh, yeah, like I said, kind of, seems to be missing a little bit of that humanist streak that, that was going, um, so freely through free solo. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Skywalker's a love story. It's going to be on Netflix, uh, at some point soon. Um, did you have one more that you wanted to mention, Bill? I did, and it's it's the one that uh, I I cried the most at. Uh, maybe the one I've cried the most at in my life. I'm not quite wow. Sure. It's either it's either this or it's a wonderful life every Christmas Eve. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but I texted my friend after I saw it, and I said this was like Return of the King times ten. Uh, in terms of cry factor, <laughs> and it is, it is the one you would expect to cry at. I think, uh, in, entitled uh, "Super Slash Man," the Christopher Reeve story. Uh, it is a doc uh, about the life of Christopher Reeve, who, of course, famously played uh, Kal El, the Man of Steel, in four films uh, during the late seventies and eighties. Uh, and whereas, you know, the most the most obvious touchstone for this doc is something like uh, "Still," a Michael J. Fox movie from last year. Um, because of course both are involving you know big uh, A-list you know movie stars who unfortunately came down with really uh, debilitating uh, medical conditions, and whereas still involves you know a, a person who's still alive, hence the title, uh, and gives a very frank interview about his life and his struggles and what he's still struggling with and the fact that he's still persevering. Um, that's a very inspiring movie, and so is Superman. However. Superman, of course, has the different tone being the fact that both Christopher Reeve and his wife, Dana Reeve, uh, did pass away very shortly within a year of each other. And so there is obviously a bigger sense of loss, a bigger sense of, of melancholy involving, you know, essentially the tragedy that they succumb to, whereas still trying to put an onus on how meaningful their lives were to each other, as well as to a lot of other people, as well as to, you know, advocating for disability rights, uh, which uh, Christopher Reeve did in the latter part of his life after the accident in which he was thrown off a horse and, you know, almost broke his neck, but his, you know, spine was severed and all that. Um, And uh, this one is uh, directed by Ian Bonhout. I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. And Peter Edguiz. uh, And um, they uh, also have a little bit of uh, experience with, touchy subjects because they also made a doc entitled rising phoenix uh, about the paralympic games um and uh this one you know is no different in the sense that it it threads the needle of you know dealing with a lot of different subjects in terms of not just reeve's career which ultimately if you're looking for a doc about christopher reeve the actor this maybe isn't the best doc because it really only touches on the superman films it kind of you know brushes over most of the other 
features that he made. There's mm. maybe a mention here and there, but if you're looking for more of a true Hollywood doc, this isn't the doc for you. This definitely is the doc for you if it's one that you can relate to in terms of if there's someone in your life who's impaired physically or mentally, uh, or if, if it's yourself dealing with a, a, a medical issue, or if it's just, you know, human rights issues, because, you know, disability, of course, is not something that allows, you know, people to automatically be shuffled off as, you know, not human anymore. Like they're yeah. still, people, they still need lives. They still need quality of life. And uh, it's something that is incredibly moving. Uh, the way it's structured is it bounces back and forth between, you know, Reeve post-accident and Reeve pre-accident. And ultimately the doc's mission, it feels creatively, is to try and reconcile both of those halves because naturally people view his existence as, you know, there's pre-accident and post-accident because you are leading such a dramatically different life after you've lost the use of most of your, you know, functions, uh, your bodily functions. But um, what Superman is trying to do is saying, you know, this is the same guy, he, you know, his personality hasn't changed, his soul hasn't changed. And his goals change a little bit, but essentially he's got the same, you know, rationale uh, at his core, which is to try and uh, better himself, but also better the people around him. And it's something that uh, Reeves' children, uh, re you know, um, both from his first uh, first no, relationship, not marriage, but first relationship, and then his later marriage, they're all involved in the doc. Um, they were all there at the premiere, so of course that made it that much more touching. Wow. Uh, it, goes, it goes a lot into his relationship, uh, his friendship with Robin Williams and how much they did for each other. Um, oh, that's cool. I didn't even know they were friends. That's awesome. Oh yeah. They were roommates. Uh, in fact, um, when they were going to Juilliard, uh, and, um, it's something where I, I challenge you, uh, and I, I you as a general, you like anybody watching this movie, I challenge to watch and not get at least misty eyed, but I think you're going to be a blubbering mess by the end, <laughs> <laughs> man, Bill, I feel like this, this year's Sundance, this, the crop of movies that I watched anyway, result in me, you know, resulted in me being a, a blubbering mess many, many more times over than any other oh, wow. uh, collection of Sundance movies that I've seen, you know, in, in short order. So, uh, yeah, just a, a really wild Sundance for me in terms of like just bawling my eyes out on my couch. But, um, yeah, oh, th this sounds fantastic. And I was just reading about it a little bit. It seems like, um, uh, Warner brothers discovery has actually made like a $15 million bid on this movie. So I think they're in, as far as I know, according to IndieWire anyway, they're in like active negotiations to acquire this movie. So that would be interesting, obviously, because there's a, the, the, the DC, yeah. Yeah, yeah, DC studios is, is under the Warner brothers label or whatever. So, um, or the umbrella rather. So, uh, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Hopefully somebody picks it up, but it sounds like, I think you know, they will. If, yeah. And if yeah. Warner brothers ends up to, it does end up picking it up. I mean, I mean, heck it's, I, I'm going to reveal my bias here, but, uh, it's definitely a much better advertisement for the DC characters that they supposedly own than anything they've made in the last 10 years. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. because this really is like, I mean, I think part of the doc's strength is the fact that it knows that Reeve, his legacy and his life was so conflated with this character. And, you know, part of the doc is going into like, how do you deal with that as a human being? Like you're not this character and yet you're so identified with him. And it really tries to, like I said, thread that needle of like, I am and I am not this character mm -hmm. at the same time. And I think if Warner Brothers ends up you know, putting it out, it's a really interesting way to sort of honor in a weird way the Superman legacy as well as the Reeve legacy. 
Yeah. So it's interesting to me, Bill, that you um, called up the name of uh, It's a Wonderful Life earlier, because the next, the, the final movie that I wanted to talk about is called Ebelin. And this movie, again, moved me to tears several times. And I wrote in our little, um, my little like capsule review of it, that it, it almost feels like it's a wonderful life for the digital era. It's a, a reminder that everybody has the potential to profoundly impact people around them. And that's basically what this this uh, documentary is about. It is a, a love letter to sort of the power of connection. Um, so Benjamin Ree is the director behind this. He directed a film called The Painter and the Thief, which came, uh, came to Sundance in 2020. Great movie. Highly recommend checking that out. Um, and Ebelin is a documentary about a young man who was born in Norway, I think. Uh, and he uh, developed a, or I guess was born with, a type of muscular dystrophy where, you know, this incurable disease that progressively weakens your muscles and results in an early death. And so his parents watched their son essentially waste away in front of them. And they were so disappointed that he was not able to have the experiences that other kids have, specifically being able to fall in love and make friends and and sort of participate in like social activities the same way that like, I guess, traditionally abled kids could in their minds. And when their son died, when he was 25, they were gutted, obviously, and they updated a post on a blog, uh, they updated a blog that their son kept. And they put this this blog post out there saying, basically, hey, our son died, just in case anyone who's reading this wants to know this is what happened. And they left their email address in the uh, blog post. And very soon after publishing that blog post, dozens and dozens of emails started coming in from the World of Warcraft community, where their son spent most of his time online. And these people are writing these huge heartfelt emails about how much of an impact this guy left on their lives. And this movie is really fascinating because like the first part of it is kind of a traditional documentary, um, you know, almost from the parent's perspective of what they thought their son's life was like. And then at this point when they realize, oh, wow, you know, he had a much more vibrant digital life than he ever could have had uh, in, in his sort of like traditional physical life, I guess. Um, then the movie does this really fascinating thing where through uh, basically like archived messages and archived stuff on the World of Warcraft servers, the filmmakers are able to recreate moments that uh, the main kid had in the land, you know, in the, in the animation style of World of Warcraft. And so we, the audience of this movie, are able to go into that world and watch these interactions that he had with these people. And there are wow. interviews that are, that are all sort of um, slotted throughout of the people who operated these avatars that he interacted with. And they talk about how much he impacted their lives and changed the relationships that they had with their family. And like, you know, it's just this amazing, uh, amazing movie that really um, left me, uh, you know, once again, a blubbering mess and, and is really like a very, very, very strong, um, uh, I guess, like proponent of digital connection and what the the upsides of that can mean because we all know that the internet is kind of like a hellhole right? especially these days it just seems to be getting worse and this is yeah. like a a celebration of what the internet can be at its best and the types of people that can really um make profound and and um lasting changes in other people's lives uh and it, it's just an incredible piece of work. I think it's my favorite thing that I saw at Sundance this year. So uh, that wow. is called Ebelin, and it's the 
it's a weird word because it's the name of his character, his avatar in World of Warcraft. I don't think this word exists uh, <laughs> normally. It's oh, right. I-V-E-L-I-N. Um, and it looks like Netflix just picked this one up as well. So um, again, the same kind of uh, hesitations and, and whatever, but like, I guess this one probably doesn't have like a huge upside in terms of like theatrical potential or whatever. So I guess it makes sense that a streamer would pick it up. Um, but yeah, I, I cannot recommend this highly enough. It is called Ebelin and Benjamin Reeves, the director, really, really fantastic stuff. Bill, I think this one, especially, you know, given the the movie that you just t- talked about, if you liked the Superman movie, I think there's a lot of um, sort of shared DNA uh, with this one. I think you're going to dig this one a lot. Oh yeah. No, I'm excited to see it. Would you say Ben, that this was a particularly strong Sundance? Um, you know, for the, I spent most of the stuff, I, I think I saw, geez, uh, 18 movies, which I think is the most I've ever seen in a Sundance. I think I haven't done a, a full count yet. Um, going back in my, my own history or whatever, but of the 18 that I saw, I liked way more than I didn't. So my personal, um, uh, ratio was really, really high. And I saw a ton of documentaries and I liked almost all of the documentaries that I saw. So I think it was a very strong year in terms of docs. Um, and I wish that I was there in person to see a lot of the narrative stuff that you did. Um, but, uh, yeah, once again, I'll just encourage people to click on the link in the show notes, which is like every movie that we saw at the festival and it has either excerpts or, uh, the castle reviews. So you can get more there. And there are a bunch of movies that we did not talk about, uh, on that list. So I, I want people to, to go and, and check those out and be able to like put those on their radar for, uh, for the remainder of the year. And I think we're still going to have some stuff, um, specifically from bill that's going to be written on the site, uh, in the coming days too, from some other things that he, uh, saw and didn't include in, in our big list here. So stay tuned to slash film for that. Um, I think that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you, Bill, for joining and, and uh, yeah, relaying your, your Sundance experience. Would, would you say that you had a positive experience at the fest overall in person this year? Oh yeah, I think it was really encouraging to see, and and I wasn't unfortunately there in person in 2023, uh, but this one it felt like from a lot of the people I was talking to and and seeing in line that there was a, definitely a vibe like, hey, we're back, like you know things are kind of up and running again after you know this big stumble over the last couple of years, and I think the movies bear that out. You know, we've we've all been saying like, wow, this overall there's been a really great ratio of, of you know really enjoyable movies to not. Uh, at this festival. And I think it just reiterates how important Sundance is as a festival. And um, it has uh, still has a taste that's uh, really admirable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so you can find more about all the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. I will link to a couple things in the show notes as well. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscri- uh, subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Uh, Tell your friends about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.